Thank you, Bill, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, let me just get right into the subject. Um, as Bill mentioned, uh, my remarks will be drawing on our ongoing project on uh, policy responses to unfettered finance in the global economy. Uh, my colleague Pablo Heydrich, who will be joining us a little later this morning, will also be drawing on the project's findings, but um, we'll be saying complementary things uh, to each other. I'll particularly pick up on some of the discussion last night uh, by examining the implications of the crisis for reforming political economy. Much of what I'm going to be saying is about ideas, the ideas that inform uh, the political economy of today. I'm, in other words, going to drill down into some of the thinking that uh, lies, that lurks perhaps beneath the international financial and economic crisis. Let me start by saying there is a potential shift in my view about thinking about political economy, the ideas that govern uh, the political economy. And just uh, by way of illustration, things have really changed over the past 23 years. I just took uh, two books off my bookshelf and uh, the titles are as follows. In 1986, um, a book by Peter Gregory, who was at the World Bank at the time, uh, was entitled The Myth of Market Failure. The subtitle was Employment and the Labor Market in Mexico. This is an all but forgotten volume, and it uh, glowed about the marvels of uh, how workers and labor had benefited through reforms in, in Mexico. So that was 1986. One that's almost hot off the press, which I would urge you to consult, uh, is by a journalist by the name of Justin Fox. And the title of this book is, it's also about a myth, but uh, whereas Peter Gregory spoke of the myth of market failure, Justin Fox's book is entitled, The Myth of the Rational Market, A History of Risk, Reward, and Delusion on Wall Street. So the myths seem to have changed quite a bit in the past 23 years. And I'd like to come back to uh, what Justin Fox says in some of my remarks. Basically, um, what I'm going to be talking about is the paradigm of neoliberalism, which has informed the political economy of the past generation ever since the late 1970s. And there were many challenges to this paradigm during the last 25 or 30 years, and frequent breakdowns in the 1980s and the 1990s with a series of financial crises. But it was never overthrown. When the paradigm failed, it did so spectacularly at the center rather than at the periphery. Is the pendulum swinging? Well, there are some promising signs. In addition to, I think, the very apt award of the Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize to President Obama. The Nobel Prize in economics this year was awarded to Eleanor Ostrom, who, by the way, is the first woman ever to get the Nobel Prize in economics. But what's 
particularly interesting is that she has been rewarded for her work on the governance of common pool resources. And much of what she has uh, worked on and analyzed is the fact that market solutions to common pool resources are not often viable solutions. That common pool resources and the governance of common pool resources by communities is something that's not only vi uh, viable, but uh, actually very uh, the first best uh, and most commendable approach to governing common pool resources. Also winning the Nobel Prize this year was Oliver Williamson, uh, whose work also bears upon the limitations of competitive markets. Now, um, it's also interesting who did not win the Nobel Prize this year. Let me just start by asking people in the room, how many people would recognize or know about the work of Eugene Fama, F-A-M-A? -A? Can I have a show of hands? Okay, that, that, that's very interesting because I'm going to be talking about a series of economists who have really deeply informed the way uh, we think, particularly about financial markets, over the past uh, 25 years. And Eugene Fama was the founder of efficient, the efficient market hypothesis in the 1960s, according to which financial markets are efficient and stock prices represent fair value. And believe it or not, Eugene Fama was in the running for the, for the Nobel Prize in economics this year. And I think it would have been such a travesty if he were to win and Eleanor uh, Ostrom were not to win the prize. But Eugene Fama is far, far from the only person in a whole school of financial economics that has grown since the 1960s. Um, how many people in the room have heard of the following? Myron Scholes. A few, okay. Um, Fisher Black. Okay, um, let me just go through this very quickly because uh, these people are actually extremely important and we neglect them and their work at our peril because they have actually laid the foundations for the crisis and for the financial structure that we are dealing with today. Myron Scholes and Fisher Black worked in the 1970s about, uh, on, on the issue of options pricing. Um, simultaneously, William Sharp worked uh, on capital asset pricing model, which helped uh, to define how to price assets and securities. Uh, he was joined by people like Harry Markowitz and Merton Miller. By the way, um, Sharp and Markowitz and Miller all won the Nobel Prize in 1990. And, and Myron Scholes and Fisher Black won the Nobel Prize in 1997 in, in economics. And basically, what this school of thought has, um, uh, how they've influenced us today is their, their proposition that markets are efficient, they usually get things right, or at least much more right than governments ever can or should and that therefore macro and microeconomic intervention by governments are second best policies if, uh, if they're worth considering at all and anathema most of the time. 
Uh, this has led to policies of liberalization, deregulation, and privatization, and the promotion of economic globalization supported by such policies. The end of Soviet communism in the late 1980s seemed to lay to rest any remaining contrary views and marked the birth of the Washington Consensus. Now what's particularly uh, notable, I think, about the work of these financial economists is its highly mathematical nature. Uh, in fact, there was a, um, a phenomenon of Wall Street recruiting uh, mathematicians and um, particularly physicists who joined Wall Street firms in, in droves because they were the only ones who could really understand the mathematics of uh, options pricing and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, things that I've just talked about, and, and which Justin Fox, in his book on the myth of the rational market, goes into in a very non-technical way, if anyone is interested, and I'd, I'd urge you to do that. But what this led to is a real division between, on the one hand, the technical experts who were driving the financial machine through these mathematical models, and um, the layer above them, the bosses, the, the managers of financial institutions and banks, on the one hand, inside the private sector, and inside the public sector, the supervisors and the regulators. I mean, the, 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 the lack, the profound gulf between the practitioners and the policy makers and managers uh, was, I think, uh, one of the uh, warning signs that uh, things could easily go wrong. So um, what does this mean in terms of uh, the moment that we are at now? It has the fact that the market has crashed and has discredited to a large extent much of the thinking and the work of these financial economists over the last uh, uh, three decades, does this represent a shift back to the, the Keynesian consensus which marked the generation before them? I think it's much too soon to tell. I'm, I'm personally somewhat pessimistic that that is about to happen. But there still nonetheless exists an opportunity to revisit the ideas that inform uh, the political economy of uh, the market today. But there were other people who also worked during the past um, quarter century whose work was uh, either ignored or dismissed. For example, that of Hyman Minsky, uh, who uh, developed a hypothesis of uh, financial instability. And, and Hyman Minsky argued that particularly in long periods of stability, which became uh, dubbed as the great moderation by, uh, by um, uh, Bernanke just a few years ago, uh, the propensity for the financial sector to take greater and greater risks increases. Uh, and I think and Minsky's work has been vindicated by what has happened uh, in the great crash of the last year. There were also insiders who uh, were cited in, in last uh, night's uh, uh, presentations by Jose Antonio Campo and Jomo, uh, people like Bill White at the Bank for International Settlements. But there were also other interesting insiders. For example, um, this just came to my attention in today's newspaper, uh, a woman by the, by the name of Brooksley Bourne, 
who is uh, the head of the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Corporation, uh, which oversees uh, the trading of, of derivatives. She was warning in the 1990s that trouble lay ahead because she could see the, the amount of risk that was being taken by uh, players in the commodities and in the futures markets. Her, her um, concerns were dismissed as alarmist by Robert Rubin and by uh, Alan Greenspan, who was at that time the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And by the way, if you want to know more about this, there is a program on um, PBS on Frontline at 9 p.m. about the work of uh, Brooksley Bourne uh, in uh, the CFTC in the 1990s. Uh, and I can't help but also allude to something else in, in today's report on business that, uh, and speaking of women and gender, uh, women hedge funders, uh, women managers of hedge funds have actually done much better than uh, male managers of, of hedge funds. So if you've got a few hundred thousand to invest, to play the market, look for a woman hedge fund man manager, not for a man. Okay, so um, as I said, many critics uh, voiced their doubts and opposition to the prevailing paradigm of the time, the Washington con consensus, but it's taken the current crisis to really shake it to its foundations. Uh, what, what I'd like to do, and I hope this paves the way for today's discussion, is uh, ask a series of questions that uh, would um, that I, I would suggest that we think about and that inform how we change the paradigm uh, of political economy. First of all, how should government be viewed? Should it be viewed uh, as a problem or constraint as it tends to have been over the past quarter century or should it be viewed as a positive and stabilizing actor? How should we think about macroeconomic policy? Um, should we think of macroeconomic policy as being neutral or uh, pro-cyclical, but there's nothing we can do about it? Or should we think of macroeconomic policy being counter-cyclical? The G20 have spoken in favor of counter-cyclicality. The issue, though, is how to turn counter-cyclicality from a policy idea into practice. There's all, already uh, ruminations about putting the current stimulus into reverse because of fears of uh, inflation on the horizon. Another question, what is the best approach to financial innovation? In fact, what is the place of the financial sector in the modern economy? And this is the, the issue that Carrie Levitt uh, raised in the panel last night. The financial sector uh, as a result of these innovations and the work of the people I've been citing, has um, turned from being a servant of the economy to its master. In fact, it's turned into something of a cancer in the modern economy. And, and I, I say that advisedly because even people inside the financial sector talk about toxic assets. Okay, so they recognize the problem of uh, the financial sector getting out of whack. You've got a sector in which uh, there's perhaps 10 or 12 percent of GDP, but 40 percent of corporate profits being generated by a very tiny proportion. And this feeds into uh, economic and uh, income inequalities. The huge fortunes that have been amassed have gone disproportionately 
to the financial sector. And this has uh, increased inequality, uh, this issue that, to which Jose Antonio was referring to in his uh, uh, remarks yesterday. Um, what is the best approach to financial innovation? How should instruments that pose risks with low or negative social returns be weeded out? Should they be weeded out? How should they be weeded out? Uh, what is the role or the potential role of a financial transactions tax, which has been talked about now quite intensively, in, particularly in Europe, by the, the French, the British, and the Germans? How do we protect ourselves against economic volatility? Should we in actively include policies that restrict capital mobility? This is something that Jose Antonio referred to as well. Should there be a greater focus on distributional equity? Economic growth, which everyone has uh, agreed is necessary, uh, is gravely inadequate without greater equity in distributional outcomes, not just distributional opportunities. And distribution based on high but risky leverage and indebtedness, which has been the pattern of the past few years, can be very destabilizing. Is there something to the Canadian exception that uh, has been referred to by Chuck Friedman in his intervention uh, last night? Uh, finally, this refers to another project that we're working on. Should there be much greater emphasis on domestic resource mobilization and utilization? rather than uh, an excessive reliance on foreign capital and foreign aid, for that matter. So those are a, a series of questions I'd like to pose about um, reform at the national level. What about reforms of the international architecture? There's equally a series of, of issues that need to be uh, addressed. How to address the under-representation of the poorest countries in the international financial institutions? How to accord greater roles for regional organizations rather than the global organizations, the Bretton Woods institutions and the WTO. How to bring about a greater coordinating role for the UN along the lines that uh, Jose Antonio was talking about, an economic coordination council. How to strengthen cross-border regulation, particularly tax, greater tax coordination to uh, tackle tax evasion, uh, tax avoidance and illicit capital flight. How to avoid Washington consensus type of conditionality, uh, while at the same time encouraging the acceptance of diverse and heterodox approaches to economic policies by different countries. How to reform the rules on bank capital adequacy and bank regulations. There's a drift back to Basel II capital accord rules, and, and there's some real problems there. One is the fact that Basel II puts a great deal of emphasis on self-regulation, and, and the other is that um, uh, Basel, Basel II uh, can be very pro-cyclical in its impact uh, on the financial sector. Okay, so my time is running out. Um, maybe the last point is uh, how, how do we uh, bring about a more stable currency system based perhaps on greater use of the uh, special drawing right, the SDR, which uh, is a multilaterally governed reserve asset and, and potential international currency. I mean, this is something that's on the table now. How do we bring it about uh, into reality? Uh, uh, finally, uh, how do we create a quick dispersing anti-shock facility that provides um, 
aid on grant terms to poor countries that uh, are on the receiving end of shocks without conditionality. Okay, so uh, in conclusion, I, I'd like to say we are in the early stages of the possibility of a new synthesis in political economy. But ideologies are slow to change because they rationalize existing power and distributional structures. So there's going to be a lot of inertia and resistance to changing and challenging some of these uh, ideas that I've talked about. The rise of new actors in the world stage, India, China, Brazil, and so forth, along with the advent of the G20, may accelerate change in the right direction. But it really depends, and I'm sure that uh, John is going to talk about this in the next panel, on whether the new players want to change the rules or simply benefit by the old rules and bring back uh, neoliberalism and the Washington consensus in some other guise. Thank you.